Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Irina, and we're excited to have a special guest with us today, Nate. Nate is um, not only a film strip listener, but he is a friend of mine and somebody that I have done theater with, so he's seen my crazy antics um, on and off stage. Um, Nate, thank you for joining us for this one. This is kind of your idea, and we kind of brought you into the fold here. Um, are you excited to do this with us? I can't even begin to tell you how excited I am to do this one. So thank you for inviting me for this and uh, letting me choose this film. I'm, I can't wait to dig into this. Oh, no, it's always good when the guest gets to pick the movie because usually that means Jay has not seen it and he's seen everything. We know I have not seen everything, so that makes it even more exciting. <laughs> so today we are talking about Battle Beyond the Stars, starring Richard Thomas, Robert Vaughn, George Papard, John Saxon, Sybil Danning and Darlene Flugel, directed by Jimmy T. Murakami, released in 1980 on a $2 million budget, grossed $7.5 million at the box office. And when I tell you this next bit of information, that's why that will be surprising. This is a Roger Corman produced joint. So the fact that he spent $2 million bucks on something is one feat. And then that it actually grossed money in the positive is another, because Corman is known for cheap stuff. That everyone loves, but nobody paid to see. <laughs> uh, which is funny, because I've got words about this one. <laughs> so, Nate, why did you pick Battle Beyond the Stars? We wanted you to come on the show, and we said, all right, you pick the movie that's usually the go for the guests, and you came up with this one. So, I got, I'm not going to lie to you. Part of it was inspired by the fact that the soundtrack is something that just gets me going. Anytime I'm ready, to, if i got a big day at work, I'm thinking of like that just opening intro, and I'm like, yeah, I can take on anything, even Sador the Malmori. Um, it's a, it's something. I'm a huge sci-fi fan, and this is one of the first science fiction films I remember seeing as a as a kid. I mean, I, I watched Star Trek: The Motion Picture was my first ever science fiction film that I ever saw, but this is one I remember seeing at home on TV. Like, I have a, a clear memory of watching it on television, and it just stuck with me. Uh, and so it's just, it's a it's very nostalgic, it's a childhood favorite, and as we're going to discuss here in a little bit, there's a lot of connections that people don't know about behind the scenes that could be surprising for a lot of people. Oh, absolutely, and here's the part where I get to blow Irina's mind, I've never seen this before. I've heard of this, <laughs> I know I've seen like pieces here and there, but I never watched it. You know, podcast host Ron on this, I told him we were doing this, he was like, how can you have not have seen that, man? Because I saw all this stuff too, but I, I just missed this one, probably because, and this should be a shock to no one, not a big John Boy Walton fan. Um, if you go back and listen to our It reviews, he was kind of my least favorite part of all that, I mean, I think he's okay but I don't, I don't really go for him. Now, 18, George Pard, that's much more my speed as a kid. Um, John Saxon, of course, you know, the legendary Kung Fu films he was in and then Nightmare on Elm Street, all that stuff. Uh, 
so I knew my way around this one, but I'd never seen it before. So I had no idea what I was walking into. All I knew was you mentioned it. I looked at it and all I saw were the words Roger Corman. And I thought, well, I know there's going to be plenty to talk about. And then I watched it and we'll get into what I saw as a part of that. But yeah, I have never seen this before. So Irina, I assume you're, you're the newbie here too. <laughs> yeah. Never seen it. Never heard of it. Watched the trailer and looked at my husband. And I said, Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that was doozy, my, didn't I? that was my initial reaction. I looked at my husband and I was like, "Shit, I have to watch this." And I then I went on some like monologue of all of the shit movies that Jay and Ron and Nick have made me watch, and <laughs> I thought I was diving down another hole. But I've got words, so that's good. That's good. We don't like me speechless because we know that that's that I'm really going to give a bad rating. We know too. Obviously, this was made as part of the Star Wars craze. I mean, there's no doubt about that. This was part of that. But there's a lot of Star Trek in this too. We're going to talk about that. You've already mentioned the score, Nate. We're definitely going to get into James Horner and. The fact that he's ripped himself off for his entire career, I now know for sure. Um, but that's not a bad thing when you do it right. You know, Kiss has done that too, to be fair. And so has ACDC, and they're both still making money. So it can be done when you do it well. Um, but yeah, a lot of stuff here. But when you, when you say Roger Corman films, I mean, it's easy to bash on them. But the guy makes sort of knockoff entertainment. Like if there's an A thing, he's going to make the C version of it that makes just enough money to get by and keep going. And the man still in the business all these years later so we can't knock his practices entirely and in fact the model he uses is not so dissimilar to what Jason Blum does running Blumhouse it's just that Jason Blum's movies make a hundred million dollars sometimes and I don't think Roger Corman's ever seen a hundred million dollars probably not I mean it's interesting you mentioned the Waltons so for me I had never heard of the Waltons before I saw, so yeah, I saw this before I knew what the Waltons were. So when I watched the Waltons many years later, it was very different for me. I was like, "It's the same guy," but wow, this is so much more boring than, <laughs> than Battle Beyond the Stars. I like them so much better in space. Well, it gave me more to do. Literally the same guy. <laughs> My admission is that whenever we talk about names, because I grew up in a podunk town, you know, population eight hundred. When I, you know. When I was born there, now population 1,500, and I'm going to be 37, or I'm going to be 38. Look at that. I don't even know how old I am. But my confession is, like, you guys talk about names, and I go, I'm just going to scratch my head and, and look pretty, I guess. Maybe they keep me on here just because I'm funny or to blow my mind. So what other movies, just so that um, I know all of our listeners are big movie buffs, but because my knowledge is not as great as yours, what other movies has he produced? Well, I mean, he's he's done such films such as um, Von Richthofen and Brown, Gas, or it became necessary to watch the end of the world, Bloody Mama, Target Harry, The Wild Racers, <laughs> uh, The St. Valentine's Day Massacres, The Tomb of Ligeia. I mean, such movies that I'm sure everybody's heard of. It's usually one of the, he's usually, if you see a cheap horror movie late night on TBS in the 80s, Chances are it's probably a it was probably a Roger. So what t- Nate t- is saying is that the only people on this podcast who have seen these movies are Ron and Nick. 
well, probably not even Nick, but but <laughs> like he produced Boxcar Bertha, which was the second movie Scorsese ever did. That's, so he that's he's actually true. done legit stuff. Right, you cool. know yeah, him yes. though because he 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 did you know he did stuff like Thunder and Lightning. He's, he did a movie called Moving Violation, which I've seen. He's done some stuff with like Ron Howard to help him get started. Um, what he generally does again is like I think the thing that I probably know him best as as Piranha and Rock and Roll High School, like the nineteen seventy. 1979 that two horror movie punch is sort of what cemented him in i don't know the the genre legacy and then he got into doing like forbidden world and this and you know, a lot of other stuff you know him though Irina, because he has a he has a weird cameo in silence of the lambs if you've ever seen that he's one of the fbi guys that he's got this great accent he's like i don't know jack she's mad as hell you know and he hangs no shit. Or whatever. that's roger corbin so he's been in a lot of stuff He's had his hands in a lot of stuff, Slumber Party Massacre. You know, that's his kind of thing. Oh, okay. I, I think you got to know Roger Corman as like um, a genre picture producer, and, and and I don't think that's a bad thing. Like some people use that as a pejorative. The man knows what he likes. He likes sci-fi and horror and kind of wacky stuff. And what comes from him are works from people like Joe Dante, who's done some really cool stuff and everything. So he has a a legacy all to his own. And the whole idea of this, too, is it's not only a Star Wars thing, but it's also Magnificent Seven, but in space. So there's this whole Western, and I'm a huge Western mark, grew up on yeah. all of those. So when I when I read that little tidbit, I was like, okay, I am in anyway, because Robert Vaughn was in <laughs> Magnificent Seven. So we've already got stunt casting. See, you know, and here's where I'm going to hit, like, a hard stop, because if we don't get this summary, I'm going to start spewing stuff, and then I'm going to screw yes. up this whole episode. Yes. So somebody read this plot summary. So I'm going to give a straight line through this 140 minutes or hour and 40 minute movie as best I can for you two. So here we go. When Sador, the tyrannical warlord and leader of the Malmori, threatened the peaceful farming world of Akir with destruction, the planet leadership, too old and not equipped to fight for the and not equipped to fight, dispatch a young boy, Shad, along with an old but powerful cruiser vessel run by a computer called Nell, to hire mercenaries to fight in their stead. Along the way, Shad meets a variety of trained killers, the earthling space cowboy, the rich and cynical Gelt, the Valkyrie war- warrior Saint X-Men, the alien Cayman, and Nestor, part of five clones who work together as one. He also meets a young woman, Nanella, daughter of a scientist who initially just wants Shad to help populate his species by mating with the girl. But anyway, he ends up rescuing her and bringing her along for the ride. The ragtag group returns to Akir and they stage a fight to take out Sator's superior forces by attacking his super weapon, the Stellar Converter, which totally sounds like something you should put in your guitar effects lineup. The During the battle, many of the mercenaries die heroically. Until Shad and Nanella aboard the crippled Nell are the only ones left. They set Nell to self-destruct in classic Star Trek fashion and hide in the escape pod. The explosion destroys Sator's ship and ends the galactic threat of the Malmari. Shad tells Nanella that no one who dies heroically is remembered... Or no one who dies heroically is... <sighs> Shad tells Nanella no one who dies heroically is forgotten if they're remembered for the sacrifice they gave when they died. And the Akira prepare to live free peacefully as credits roll and James Horner takes us home. And that's about the best straight line I can give you for the movie. There's a lot to talk about, a lot to unpack. There's no real reason to step through it piece by piece because, again, this unfolds very much like a remake of Magnificent Seven. Farming community, they got no money, 
They go and send a young boy to hire some killers. He falls in love along the way, and he brings back some killers, and all hell breaks loose when it's time to throw down in the third act. But, but, we have to go with James Horner's audition for doing the score for The Wrath of Khan, because it was beautiful! Oh, yes. 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 I heard those trumpets start going, and then a and I was like, oh, I know who wrote yeah. this. <laughs> yes, exactly. See, James Horner, that's the thing I love. He's probably my all-time favorite composer. I mean, we're Me talking too. Aliens. He were talking mm-hmm. Star Trek II. James Horner, amazing, amazing composer. This was his first feature film composing. I mean, and you can hear it. I mean, it's, you hear the hot, you hear the low brass playing the high notes. You know, it's classic mm-hmm. James Warner. Um, and yeah, so yeah, I made I made the joke in the intro that your James Warner's kind of cribbed from himself his whole career, and there's nothing wrong with that. Again, if you find something that works, and you nailed it, Nate. I never heard it put that way, but you're right. It's low brass playing high notes, and yeah. it, so it has this ringing ethereal space quality to it. So one of the other things, and I'm gonna, I'm totally gonna take over as the musician here. One of the other things that James Horner does is it's not just low brass he uses. He uses a lot of French horn, and French horn is classically known to be the closest instrument to the human voice. And there's something about that that kind of pulls you in because it gives it a little bit of humanity. Um, the only other movie that I've seen him kind of air from his classic way is uh, Project X. And I don't know if yeah. you saw Project X, but Mm-hmm. Let, for the love yeah. of monkeys, let's do that one next. Yeah, that's a very that's a very different one for him, and a very different kind of movie too. Yeah, very different. Yeah, yeah but yeah, Horner sets the tone, and that's the thing is, I, I knew going into this, I'm like, okay, Star Wars knockoff, fine, I'm I'm there because I'm a big mark for the early Star Wars movies. But I'm watching the opening credits, and I'm like, nope, this is Star Trek and Star Trek Two, like the credit, <laughs> the font yep. almost. I'm like, did you Roddenberry and for them? I, it I like came text out first. I yeah, texted Ron and said, did, are like Gene Roddenberry and Corman like buddies or something? He's like, no, <laughs> not that I know. And I was like, well, okay. So, you know, I, I don't know. I think Shatner was in a Corman flick, but yeah, I, I, I had no idea. And I'm watching this going like, man, Nicholas Meyer and everybody that made Star Trek 2 owe a lot to this opening sequence. Seriously. There were actually elements of the soundtrack from Star Trek, the motion picture incorporated, as well as some of the sound effects too. Especially that, like, low guitar, that was very reminiscent of the V'ger approach. I mean, that was... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was right down to, like, when when any of our ships have any sort of shootout. I mean, it was drawn from other... That was not their own creation. It was... The pew-pew was pulled from either Star Wars or Star Trek. They both kind of blend together at some point. Yeah. Well, it should also be mentioned the other Artur that's a part of this thing that really got his, this was his mark and starting point. James Cameron was brought in as a, as an art designer to make models for Corman and they fired the art director in the middle of this or right at the beginning of it and literally turned to him and said, you think you can do this? And he said, <laughs> yeah, sure. In typical James Cameron fashion. And what he pulls off. The effects in this are amazing. And a part of that is me being an old man and liking practical effects. But the spaceship stuff, you can tell when it's matted a little bit, but it mostly looks good. The grounds that sink in and out and the sets and everything. I mean, for two million bucks, they squeezed every bit of juice out of that that they could. And you can see Cameron's artistry and his vision start to happen here. And I, I swear, I saw certain pieces of tech that I'm like, that wound up in a Terminator movie several years later. Because this guy just has a design 
aesthetic in sci-fi that is unique to itself. Yeah, and we can't give um, we can't give him credit for everything, but there are even a couple of moments where we have like the 1984 Dune like throwback at you with the yeah. view of the planets on the screen um, in the vessel there, and I I literally stopped and I was like Dune vibes, which was followed by. Nell, our ship, saying mercenary sons of bitches, and which I thought was friggin' phenomenal, and I died. Yeah, no, it, it's it's interesting. You were talking about James Cameron, and you'd also mentioned Terminator. I mean, on this working on this film, James Cameron, Gail Ann Hurd, who would then work with Cameron on producing Terminator and Aliens. Uh, you also have James Horner, who did the music for Aliens. Earl Bowen, who played the lead guy, Nestor, who played the Doctor in the Terminator 1 and 2. Yeah, And you've also got little lone fact that a guy working as a carpenter on the film, working on helping James Cameron's set design, a very young Bill Paxton. Yes. Yes. Nate, yeah. That is Nate, awesome. Where, Nate, where have you been? Why have you not been here with I, us? I, I, I knew I knew Paxton had, had background with Corman. That's so neat that he was there. Yep. And the Gail and Heard part, when Cameron and, and Hurt were still together, that's how he got involved in the studio. I, yeah, there's so much, like... It's only now when you look back and realize how many people were kind of starting out on this thing, and it launched so many of them to such bigger projects. Oh, yeah. But it's also easy to see. Like, you look at this movie, and I'll just put my cards on the table now. I expected, like, okay, this is going to be cheesy and kind of stupid and whatever. And it is, but it's also thoroughly entertaining. Like, at no time was I ever bored for the entire running time of this, and that was a surprise. No, and I was messaging both of you saying, I think this is the first time in a long time I've sat and just, like, watched a movie. It was completely quiet in my house. Nobody interrupted me, and I just got to sit and watch it. It was the best experience I've had in a while. (laughs) To be fair, I did ask if your family was safe at that time. You you did, and they were all attached to devices. They were fine. I did not lock them outside in the heat. Yeah, no, you, you look at this movie, though, and you start kind of going through it. The The visuals are what keeps you involved with it. Because one thing I will say is that the acting is not there. Right? They, they no, don't have, they no, don't have the stars. Yeah, and, and I get the idea of Richard Thomas because he's a good analog for Mark Hamill. And Mark Hamill is a very talented person, no doubt. He is not a great actor. Neither is Richard Thomas. They have their purpose and they kind of fill it. What saves this is like Lynn uh, Carlin as the voice of Nell being that kind of smart ass mother from Alien. Oh, absolutely. She was beautiful. Yeah. She was amazing. Yes. And John Saxon giving the most mustache twirling villain performance <laughs> without having a mustache ever in a movie. That guy, I love that guy in anything. And when he gets to be the bad guy, I'm always down. He was, he was amazing. I will say his character, it makes me want to see a sort of prequel to this. There has, there has to be more that was written in there. You see that he needs body parts attached to him. He talks about, like, I'm wearing this guy's foot and he needs the arm. And you see, if you look closely right before surgery, his arm is all is filled with pustules. It looks disgusting. And so mm-hmm. he's needing these body parts. Not that he wants these, he's needing these body parts. And the Malmori are clearly a race of genetic, what did he call them? Genetic failures. That yeah. Why can't I have together. smart or smart mutants? Yes, yeah, smart mutants. <laughs> and it's, it makes you wonder, so what are the Malmori and why is he like that? I mean, it would make for a fascinating backstory. 
you know the there thing has to be one there. The thing is, man, what what it clicked to me was the movie that got made several years later, The Last Starfighter. The oh, bad yeah. guys in that movie remind me a whole lot of the Malmoric. That is very true. And that I didn't awesome. realize how much of that movie obviously cribbed from this. Like so much of it. And down to the Cayman guy is pretty much the navigator is <laughs> in <laughs> the last exactly. Starfighter. You know, when I remember seeing The Last Starfighter as a kid, I was I said seeing Battle Beyond the Stars first. I was like, wait a minute. This guy. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. This it's amazing to think, like between that and everybody working on this film and what they did later after working on this film, had this film not come together, had this film not been made, we would have missed out Last Starfighter, Terminator, Terminator Two, Aliens. And it just mm-hmm. Unbelievable films that came out later. Very inspiring. We would have lost a lot. I think one of the things that I really liked about this um, cast of characters is that there's somebody for everyone. There's the I love Cowboy. He might be my favorite character in the entire movie because I, for some reason, always love the guy that rallies everybody together. Um, the only character that I have any appreciation for in Star Wars is Han Solo and ugh. This kind of like gave me that void with being a little bit extra bad, like 20 years later, like he got tired of everything and started chain smoking, you know, and drinking out of his belt. By the way, I want one of those belts. Um, oh, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but there's somebody for everybody. We've got the cowboy. We've got the innocent girl. We've got our, our young man. And then we've got say next man with her tatas everywhere and her Shira costume. <laughs> that woman came on the screen and I was like, hot damn, there's Shira. How, how did Sybil Danning, I guess it's just the miracle of zero gravity that kept any of that on her. Cause I'm That's, looking at that honestly, not to be a horn dog, but I was like, how are you covering that up? Like, I don't I'm understand. Band-aids actually. I read that oh. band- they had to use a lot of band-aids to keep it up. Well, what I a was duct just tape. Wondering- I was wondering where her nipples were. Is So you're not being the horn dog. I'm being the pervert going, okay, I've done stage theater before. There's no line for a bra. Where did her nipples go? Oh, believe me, as a young boy watching this movie, <laughs> what do you think I was thinking? I was like, I would try to like freeze frame it on the VCR and look a little closer. It's like, come on, maybe I think I saw something. What's neat about it is she's a Valkyrie, right? And now yeah. kids nowadays and younger people nowadays will equate that to Tessa Thompson from Thor Ragnarok and some of that other stuff, which is a cool performance and that's a cool thing in and of itself. But I love how Valkyrie have just sort of blended themselves throughout <laughs> history, throughout time. But I, I liked her whole thing. She was great. Space Cowboy was awesome. The funniest thing about that was that he had a damn Stars and Bars Confederate flag on the back of his good, spaceship. Good to see that the lost cause <laughs> of the confederacy is still alive and well <laughs> far in the future it's just like really? yeah and oh. I, I did write a note down about that i was like oh my god the confederate flag why is that there i mean it's like the most redneck thing ever you know coming by but in 1980 the point of reference would have been like smoking the bandit you oh, know or something well, like absolutely. that yeah, well, and, so, know, and that's yeah that's totally what go they're from, going like the confederate flag to dial a drug and dial a date Yes, yes. And I sat there, I was like, what is going on? And then then you have the super rich guy who's sitting (laughs) on his throne, surrounded by his gold, Robert Vaughn, in all of his glory, his pre-Superman 3 evilness glory, giving the same performance, by the way, that he always gives from the man from Uncle and all this. I know this guy from years. Yeah, love this guy because he's so like cynical and just 
dry and just done with it. He's, just, he's like the epitome of meh. He's just done with all of it, but he still has enough humanity to go and fight one last time. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned the, uh, the budget of $2 million. And the majority of that was tied up into his uh, fees as well as uh, George Pepper. You know, and but, that was basically the big part of the, the fuse, but it was it worked, especially George Pepper doesn't count. Oh man, but he's awesome. He, here, here's the thing, though: is Robert Vaughn's character ends up being one of the most selfless of all of them. There, he mm-hmm. just goes right in. His job is to kill things, and I think in his mind he knows. And you, you see him. There is. A little bit of character development there. A little bit of character development. You see him when they do start this battle where he is like, nope, I'm just going to kill everybody. And I knew I was going to die. Well, here's the, the smart thing about this movie is they realized either very quickly that the character of Shad or the person that they cast as Shad was a piece of cardboard. And so they had to have all <laughs> these characters around him. And look, if you think about Luke in the original Star Wars He's a piece of cardboard. You yeah. surround him with all these interesting people and interesting things, and it brings out more depth for it all, particularly with Nell and like her comic relief. And then you you put him put him up next to the ingenue, like you said, Irina, and it's the, you, that's what you see. Like I was waiting for you know George Rapard to stop playing the harmonica and go. You just want these two kids to get together, don't you? You know, and keep going back to playing it like a Neil Simon play or something. <laughs> well, you know what one of the one of the things I loved about this was while we had an ex- so we have an exchange between Sam Axman and um our ingenue talking about sex and you know all of the things that are different about this culture right and then there's a brief makeout scene and then she reminds him it's his torque bar which killed me <laughs> but we never cross over into anything overtly sexual or push no. it and that's what I always loved about Star Wars and Star Trek is it wasn't like in your face. You got to enjoy yes. the story and enjoy yes. like the hint and the suggestion of I this. Re- I really, uh, really, really appreciate that because if there's two things in films that really annoy me is a uh, love story that's pushed in your face that really isn't that necessary and annoying kids that just ruin <laughs> everything. Like They're just always the ones that ruin everything in the movie. I, this movie didn't have those. Yes, you had some kids that come up to Gelt and ask him, are you a bad person? I actually kind of like that. And yes, I like that she says, oh, your torque bar is, you know, you need to fix your torque bar. <laughs> it actually spoke to her character. She was surrounded by androids her whole life. Mm-hmm. Everything is just like, okay, I want to learn this. Okay, I know what that is now. Moving on. Next thing. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of things of this. Now, my favorite character in there, aside from St. X-Men, is <laughs> Nestor. I love Nestor. Yeah. Nestor, it was hard for me to describe what Nestor was until much later. In my opinion, Nestor would be like if Data from Star Trek ran the board. Yes. Yeah. So you, the, Nestor is one consciousness by many drones, by many, well, they call them clones, but it's one Nestor, one consciousness. But they want to explore. They want to learn. They want to better themselves. They want to, they're, they're friendly. They're cordial. They... They just want adventure, just like Data. And I I really did like that about Nestor. 
There's I very much a data quality to that character, too. It personified oh. when the lead Nestor or whatever it gets captured by Sador and they you know, go to cut the arm off and he just sort of self, uh, you know. Yeah, uh, it, yeah, he just ends himself. But the other five or other four take control of the arm and try to get John Saxon to cut his own <laughs> head off. And I was like, this is like Evil Dead too. Yes, I love it. And you know, so, it almost yeah. worked. I mean, and, and I loved all those aspects, too. What I really loved was the director's choice of the moment when Space Cowboy is warming up a hot dog. And we haven't talked about Kelvin, and I love the two oh, Kelvin yeah. characters. They're mm-hmm. amazing. They're so cute. And that's the only word I can use to describe them, that they're cute. But Space Cowboy is cooking this hot dog over Kelvin. Um, and <laughs> they Because they radiate heat. <laughs> <laughs> right, because that's their superpower, I guess. And and he hands a hot dog to Nestor, and he just turns around and gives it to the guy behind him, and they all start chewing. And I was like, no oh, my God. <laughs> it's so good. There's no dog in this at all. Yeah, back on Earth, we call that meat. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's a great, it's a great light. It's, it's a lot. There's all this comedy and all this humor happening around what you're looking at. It's like, it's a space rock that for some reason this guy wants to take over. It's never really... Yeah, like I guess like whatever they farm is really beneficial to him to keep him alive forever. I don't part know. Part of it is it's part of it. Maybe part is that he just wants to conquer every planet he can and wipe mm. out as many yeah. as he can. This the is the eighties version of Thanos in one. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. you're right. That's a very good analogy. Yes, it's it's interesting. Speaking of the planet Akir, there is. You would think that they don't go anywhere. That they just stay there. It's a farming planet. But there are a couple of things in the movie that give hints that there, there's more to the Akira, which, again, love the nod to Akira Kurosawa as the, uh, you know, the Seven Samurai. Mm-hmm. But there's more to the Akira than meets the eye. Akira, the Akira know about other alien species. You know, he's talking, like, when he's talking to, uh, talking about other, like, when she's asking Chad about kissing. And he says, oh, did you know in this species they do this, in this species they do that. So they're knowledgeable about other species. Chad's flown Nell before. Uh, they used to fight, but they also, I was reading, there was an actually an alternative ending, which they originally had in there, but cut out, where the peaceful people of Akir decided, you know what, we don't want, now the violence is done, we know that we're going to return to this era of violence and everything, so we, they got in their ships and left the planet. That was originally going to be the end scene, oh, where huh. the peace, more peaceful people says, you know, we're done, we just want to stay peaceful, we know that it can't happen now. Who knows who else is going to come? We're getting in our ships, and they left. So they have ship-bearing capabilities. They have trench-digging capabilities. They know about other alien races. So there's more to the Akira than meets the eye. Well, you know, one of the benefits to the Akira is they have Zed, and Zed is a million years old and blind <laughs> as a bat. And we got to, you know, make sure everybody, everybody knows that Nell is Zed's ship from when he mm-hmm. used to fight. Because we we have that brought up multiple times, that Zed used to fight, but now he doesn't. And he's the only one left that did. Can I tell you, the way that he hands off Nell to Shad, way more effective than the way they try to hand off the Millennium Falcon to new people in the latest Star Wars movies. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, yeah, internet, yeah. get mad if you want. There's plenty of episodes uh, where you can listen to me say that again, but I'll say it again. <laughs> the way they hand that off so much more seamless and makes so much more sense. There comes a time when you're too old for this shit, Danny Glover, and you need somebody else to do it. <laughs> and even if it is boring piece of wood, Richard Thomas, it'll do. You know? 
Uh, yeah, it's I, I love the way that that whole works. Can we talk about this, the design of the ships, too? Because what I love about them is in no way are any of them aerodynamic. They're big oh. chunks <laughs> of stuff, very much like what the Alien universe was, because those ships don't look aerodynamic at all. They're, like, functional, oh, right? Gelt but in space, was, who cares? Gelt's ship was pretty aerodynamic, and St. X-Men's ship was the fastest one of all, and the yeah. one that did the most damage. Well, yeah, hers was like a big arrow. You're right. I'll take that back. But, like, like Nell is a yeah. big lumbering truck. Oh, really? yeah. And, and yeah. as is Cayman's ship. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, it, its purpose is to scavenge, not to, you know, fly races. I, I do have to put my two cents in because it was all I could think about during the entire movie that Nell looks like a guild navigator from Dune. The big goofy thing inside the tube in the water that moves its mouth like a heart. That is mm-hmm. what Nell looks like. And I couldn't let it go. <laughs> well, you think it looks... That is not where I, what I thought you were going to say. Oh, well, thank I, God I didn't say whatever you thought I was going to say. I have always thought it looks like a set of women's ovaries. It does! Oh my it God, does. I didn't it, think about it that. Does. It does. It is completely a piece of anatomy from the front of it. If you're looking at it, I'm like, James Cameron is not above this, by the way, either. And so he probably flipped open a book and said, yep, we're going to make that a spaceship, boys. We're going to turn some women's ovaries into a ship. That's how we're going to Well, it's not just ovaries. There's like a whole uterus there, too, if we really want to analyze it. It's it's all there, and it all functions enough. That's that's, you know, Which is appropriate since it's Nell, and it's a female. Exactly. That that is true. She's she was priceless. She made she made Richard Thomas's character step up his game. Honestly, completely, okay. completely. Her voice acting was such perfection that I waited with bated breath to hear her speak through the entire movie because she yep. was snark. It wasn't just that she was you know the ship's voice that responded. She had that snarky you know, aspect to her that Jarvis has sometimes on the Iron Man mm-hmm. movies. Very much she, so. And she went through, obviously she went through so much with battles with, with Zed. Um, she went through a whole lot of, she probably, you know, sitting in mothballs, basically, and now she's going out with Shad, just basically, before that was just joyriding and learning how she works, and so she's probably a little snide, like, yeah, I used to actually do stuff, I was useful, and now But now I'm over 40 and my joints <laughs> exactly right. Exactly. Another holdover, by the way, from the Waltons. Lynn Carlin was also on the Waltons. So. Oh, and here's, a, here's another little tidbit. So, uh, Cayman was, he had a cameo, not <laughs> Alien Cayman, but the actor who played Cayman had a cameo on the Waltons as a relative who was a moonshiner. See? So I'm telling you, they walked on the set and got Richard Thomas, and other people were like, hello, also actors, we'll work for food. And, you know, and they, they were like, sure, catering over here is pretty good. So. Which which totally brings me to another point. We have these two members of the Mulmari who are in their little ship just monitoring the planet to see if anybody wants to move. They killed me. And right up until the day, the moment they died, and when they died, um, what's his name? Sister was in the ship with them. Like, yeah. what happened to Shad's sister? Yeah. Oh shit. We we never we, we never go back to that. He never realizes that she's dead. Like he never questions where she is. I was like, oh. She's I kind of forgotten. I kind of took the Akira yeah. as like this emotionless society in a lot of ways too. Like they had some, but not like overwrought by any of it, one way or but, the other. But we have a moment where these two annoying little kids 
go over to Gelt and yeah. ask him, well, what do you feel? And he says nothing. So they do, obviously, they, like they obviously feel and, you know, their wedding ceremony that they were having right before they got attacked. It, you know, it was this cute little passionate scene and blah, 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 blah. So obviously there's some emotion there, but maybe not a lot. What I love, though, Irene, is you talk about those two gunners real quick. And what I realized later is Family Guy ripped them off when they were doing their Star Wars episodes oh, about the two guys that. like, shoot it down, Terry. You don't do the budget. I do. You know, and they're yeah. arguing. <laughs> I was like, yes, Seth MacFarlane watched this movie, too. Uh-huh. And that's really interesting that you mentioned that about Chad's sister, because until I recently rewatched it, I didn't realize that that was his sister because it never goes back to that. Mm-hmm. And as I watched that scene and, I, and she comes out after being, you know, raped or whatever in the back room, and she comes out, I was like, wait a minute, I'm pretty sure that's Shad's sister. So I went back. I was like, it is Shad's sister. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, I, I also yeah. took it as she interfered with them enough to get them distracted so that they could get shot down. Because they yeah, were dodging like, all the shots, and like she was like, were, "I'm going yeah. down with the ship too, so no. I'm going to be a part of the solution instead of just being here and being a victim." Yeah, it might be I her did, own damn fault. <laughs> speaking of the space, speaking of the space battle, I did love how the how all the mercenaries came out. Like they basically had Saint Xman being chased, and all of a sudden, boom! Explosion! They come out from behind a the moon and they just start attacking. I just, but the mm-hmm. music's playing. Oh, it gives me goosebumps every time. It's very Independence Day. Like if you, yes. you know, like the way that those yes, ships would exactly. swarm and stuff, I was like, yes, yeah. I another, you know, forward call. And I'm like, yep, there's another movie. I guarantee you're rolling in and watch like, this thing a hundred times. Oh, so. Yes. <laughs> so we get, we get that Independence Day feel, but when they first all start showing up, it's almost like in, the, uh, at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy 2, where all of a sudden we have poof, one, poof, another, poof. They all just kind of show up and they're there yeah. to pay tribute. Um, it, 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 there were so many things that movies nowadays must have, like directors and writers just stole everything that, from this movie. That's also the end scene of Star Trek VI when everybody shows up and blows the hell out of Christopher Plummer. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> uh, which is epic and now I need to see it again. That's what this movie feels like is the template for like 75 of the things that we've all talked about here. Like there's yeah. so much in like by itself, it's fine. And I mean, it totally works as it is. So we'll get to you know the more of the action in a minute. But what's neat about it is you see not only the people that were involved in it, how they took pieces of it and went and recreated it throughout their careers, but how many other people obviously watched this. And as much as they were influenced by George Lucas and anything else, they were like, you know what? But the Corman movie, <laughs> I can do that too. I can do that in my backyard. <laughs> like really you could, if you had some good models and decent lights and that's what they did. And that's what's so neat is all the rotoscoping and all the, just the, there's a quaintness about those kind of effects. And when you get the two Kelvins who basically say, we're going to go out here and heat up everybody in front of us and blow up the little sand speeder and the other people. And we're going to light them all up. And then we're going to take a nap because we're batteries and we run (laughs) down. I I love that. I thought it was great. I also got a real kick out of the fact that, they arm up all these farmers and everything to go, I mean, charge headlong Leroy Jenkins into the <laughs> Maumori, and none of them can shoot for shit, and they are within, uh, like, feet of each other, inches, and they can't yeah. hit anything. I was like, no one can ever say bad words about Stormtrooper aiming again. Yeah, it yeah. turned into a, a space western in that moment, and it yeah. was great. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that how this, like, a lot of films later borrowed from this Part of this is kind of ironic since this film was made when Roger Corman was set to do this film and then Star Wars came out. 
basically, Hollywood basically said to any film director who's doing a sci-fi movie, he's like, okay, you see that that Star Wars film there? Yeah, that's the bar. Mm-hmm. You've got to get as close to that bar as you can. So that's why Roger Corman was like, oh, wow, I have to actually spend some money on a film for once. And that was the, the, basically science fiction films from there on out. Um, but you talked about how it influenced other films, sometimes a little too directly. Have you ever seen Space Raiders or Wizards of the Lost Kingdom? Both, yes. Space Raiders borrows not only some of the effects from Battle Beyond the Stars, but the same score, as yep. does Wizards of the Lost Kingdom. What? Yep. Yep, yep. it does. Uh, Gorman is notorious for reusing footage over and over and over, yes. and, and James Cameron has said, a lot of the effects that I did in that movie lasted for 20 years. <laughs> Good for James Cameron. Good for James Horner. And they were... Like the dynamic duo for oh, decades. Absolutely. God, there isn't a movie of theirs that I won't watch. But anyway, I digress. Well, I, I love though that we we even have the super weapon too. That you know, <laughs> we've got the Death Starver, the stellar converter. I'm like somebody sat around going, we got to come up with a cool name for this piece of shit. So everybody started throwing out words, and somewhere on a chalkboard, because this is 1979, that's what it would have been, somewhere on a chalkboard the word Stellar Converter landed, and they got John Saxon in there and had him read lines. I just couldn't picture it. And he's like, Stella Converter. And they're like, yes, go with it. And that fake Charles Bronson thing that you've got. And it totally works, because he sells it as this megamaniacal, you know, warlord. Uh, it sounds a little bit about how uh, the story about how the Daleks are first created, like how they basically said, we got to come up with some kind of look for the Daleks. The guy was at a restaurant or bar and took a salt shaker and two straws. Like, here you go, Dalek. Yep, <laughs> done. There you go. I mean, look, it's the simplest answers are sometimes, sometimes the best ones. Sometimes the simplest is the best. Yeah, yeah so exactly. it, it doesn't have to be complicated to be good. So, I. Yeah, it's all it's all wrapped together though because the thing that makes this work, and I have I have Dean Richard Thomas, and I think rightfully so because he is not great, but he's perfect in what they ask him to do up until a moment, and I'm, I'm going to really pick on him here for a minute in the climax when he gets his arm hurt or whatever, and then he starts getting mad. You know, when Richard Thomas gets mad, he looks like he's going to have a dramatic cry on a episode of the Thorn Birds or something. And I'm like, oh this is God. not working Thorn at all. Birds. <laughs> oh, but it, that, that, that to me, I was like, that doesn't work. Oh, I'm sorry. I just want a shot yeah. at him. Yeah, I just, we got to get a shot. If he comes back, bring more troops. We're never going to. We'll never stop fighting. Yeah, it's so you were talking about that. What are? I mean, in your guys' opinions, we talked about a lot of the things that were just beautiful about this film. I'm, on and on about it. What were some things that bothered you about this? Oh, the Mel Morris makeup made me just want to hurl because you could see where the latex was coming away and where they were like, oh, "Oh, you can see that spot. I'm just going to put some more hair there. Uh, And (laughs) because I didn't understand the Mel and why they had these big scars on their foreheads, I couldn't tell whether they were mutants or whether they all were born with birth defects. So I was having a moment with that. The way I picked up on it, and Nate, you tell me if I'm wrong, is that they were like cloners, but they sucked at it. And so what yes. they got were like these half Klingon, half bears or something. And that's <laughs> kind of what it's a they Klingon were. Klingon reference. It's yeah. A Klingon reference. He did, well, and even just say to himself, because he mentioned like another guy had better mutants and he gets like the crappiest. Yeah. So he has mentioned that at one point. He's like, and I get this. And so there are better ones out there. And somehow Sador. With the stellar converter, clearly the most badass weapon in the galaxy. He why does he get stuck with all the crappy mutants? Maybe because 
the Malmori says, okay, you've got the most badass weapons. You don't need a ground force. You can just bl- obliterate an entire planet. We're going to use the better ground forces for, I mean, that's my assessment. Yeah, the, the Malmori were a little underdeveloped, too, as to why they were linked to him. And the, the only thing I figured out is that maybe he had gotten so close to taking over or blowing them away that they decided, you know what, we're kind of evil, too, so we'll just tag team up. I mean, I thought it was yeah. like, you know, factions in old wrestling. Like, hey, I'm kind of a bad dude, too. Let's just get together and we'll be the Thunderbirds or whatever. Or the, the Fabulous Freebirds and we'll just mess with everybody's day. Maybe it's like Changelings in the Jim Hadar in Deep Space Nine. I don't know. I mean, it's just... That was what... I think, to me, that's the weakest part of the film is there's clearly some backstory with the Maori that would have made a lot more sense. You know, why were they doing this? Why was he just randomly invading planets? Why was he so... You know, why did he need body parts and keep replacing body parts? There's just so much there that I think could have really added to the story. It would have, but I'll say this about the Seder part. The fact that they don't over-explain why he's basically falling apart at the seams is actually kind of cool. And I'm glad they don't tell me why. Like, I just can invent, like, the space cancer he has or whatever that causes that to happen. Like, I I enjoyed the fact that they didn't over-explain the bad guy here. It's just that he was completely evil and that also having assimilated all these other body parts, that it was also driving him a little bit more crazy. And uh, I, at least that's the way Saxon yeah. played it, was that every time he added on another part, it kind he had to kind of take in some of that stuff. And I don't know, there's this bad Jeff Fahey movie. Uh, I think it's called Body Parts or something. I've from seen the, that. You know, yes. like he yeah, gets the, he, he gets, gets, gets parts from like, yeah, he gets like a hand transplant from like a like serial that, yeah. killer and it tries to yeah, kill yeah. him. And it's, it's yeah. insane. It's a nutty movie, but I felt like I was watching some of that again. And I, I don't know. I sort of enjoyed that, that they I didn't over explain him. Movie. I sadly saw that movie. <laughs> oh, God. I paid money to see it at the theater, so I'm asking yeah. why. Speaking of body parts, here's one of the things that that irked me is Nanella's dad, who is just a head on top of a box of I don't know Dalek. what the hell it was. New stereo parts. <laughs> yeah. And I've we've seen this done in so many other movies where somebody continues to live because they're attached to something else. The guy made androids. Why is he not attached to an android body? Mm-hmm. Because in yeah. Mars Attacks, they even put heads on dogs. Like, come on now. Hey, <laughs> can I tell you I've seen it done worse, though? Go watch Leprechaun 4 in space. And it's, it's no. been done a lot worse. Yeah, not a chance. <laughs> one day, one day I'm going to watch that. Nope. Just nope. for the sheer, like, if I've seen Troll 2, I can probably nope. see Leprechaun 4 in space. I recommend our Leprechaun series in the archives at FilmsterPodcast.com as an accompanying piece to that. Because so, Brian and I had thoughts about that movie. Which are so. the first episodes I listened to of Filmstrip before I said, okay, I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I mean, there's some of that that doesn't quite work. Uh, a lot about Chad doesn't work for me. A lot about Nanella is, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be, I, it's just not a great performance. It's not much of a character either. So I kind of feel bad for the girl because she's not given anything to do. Yeah, that's true. I mean, she has brief moments of technological expertise. But other than that, it's just kind of useless. And yeah, they, her acting, I think, was the worst of them. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was kind of painful to watch. I was like, okay, can we just, can we get Marta back to Christ- the cool stuff? Marta Kristen wasn't to- much better. I just no, wonder, no, like, no, what no. It, what it's like as an actor. You're sitting in basically a box. There's none of this other stuff's going on around. You can't hear any of the music. There's no effects. It's just a bunch of friggin' lights in your face. And you're told, react to the planet blowing up in front of you or something. Like, I don't know what I would do either, but not it's that. Called- 
37 takes and they pick the one that's best. Yes. <laughs> See, it's true. Well, I, this is a Corman movie, Irene. They weren't doing Kubrick takes. They were doing maybe four. <laughs> and then they were moving yeah, on. They like, they're, they're, yeah, that's they're like, why that's they sucked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah. Apparently, speaking of Corman, apparently uh, James Cameron said that he was fired twice and brought back because when it came to set design, Roger Corman was such a crazy man. Like, if, he, if Roger Corman came in and saw everybody still working on the set, he would freak out and fire everybody. So James Cameron learned later on, it's like, okay, the best thing to do is if Roger Corman's coming up, tell everybody, all the set directors, all the, all the set people that were working with uh, James Cameron, all right, leave, just get out of here. Let me just be here. And so Roger Corman coming in, seeing the unfinished project, and just one person there and thinking it was the finished project. Oh, oh, that's great. That's fantastic. Let's roll with this. And James Cameron learned later on that that's how they please Roger Corman. It's I very much like the way Tommy like Tuberville coached. Really? It's the way Tommy Tuberville coached football at Auburn. He fired his coordinators like every other drive. Oh yeah, you know, yes. and so, yeah, yeah. yeah but just, but that was exactly. part of his charm. <laughs> you know, it's, like if you didn't get fired twice in the game, you weren't calling good plays. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Tommy Tuberville. Yeah, that, he's the Tommy Tuberville of directors, I guess. You know. <laughs> Totally, I, but it's it's fun to watch all that go. I, I do want to talk about the climax, and like again, we, we've talked about how the way some of our our people go down and they go down heroically. I think Saint Exumen gets maybe the best one because she does what Without I think is doubt. yeah. I thought she was going to do the suicide dive into the to the super weapon, and she's like, no, I'm going to eject at the last minute, and then I'm going to do the Obi Wan Kenobi and cross my cleavage, and then you can blow me up. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. The Saint Exumen death was. Without a doubt, my favorite. I mean, she was, here's this character, she was seeing as an annoying little pest, she didn't have much in far as weaponry, she had a tiny ship, what could she possibly contribute? And she had the biggest impact of them all. Live fast, fight well, and have a beautiful ending. Yep, she had one of the best quotes. Yes. Not the best, not the best, but one of the best. I'm going to, I'm going to disagree with you about the deaths in this, because when Gelt died, Uh. my heart kind of went, oh, that makeup looks terrible. But, but nobody got attached to him. He didn't get attached to anybody. So you kind of felt bad for the guy. And it was so good. And it was like, there were moments here where I thought, oh God, I'm still watching this. I'm still watching this. And that was one of those moments where I was like, oh, but no, he can't die. He just killed everybody. No, but they need him. <laughs> well, that, and that's kind of, that's kind of how Magnificent Seven goes down too. And then there's another movie that that borrowed from that heavily in its ending, The Usual Suspects. Like you get so invested in the way those guys go, yeah. and then they all start getting picked off at the end. Yes. It's you, yeah. you're like, man, I don't want to like the Baldwin brother, but damn, I don't want to see him get hit in the back of the head with a pipe either. Yeah, <laughs> no, th- that's true. You know, I think the thing that makes Gelt's death a little uh, a little more impactful is the fact that. That was the only time you saw emotion from him. Mm. He was soulless. He was emotionless. He was a cold-blooded killer. He was effective. And then he was like the first guy to get killed. And then as he's laying on his deathbed, he's sitting there and he starts like crying a little bit. He says, you know, of all the things I've done in my life, everything I've done, the riches, the everything he's done, he ends up on a third-rate planet in a, in a terrible sector of the galaxy. And then he just like starts crying about it and dies. You're like, oh my, oh my God, wow, I'm really, why did he have to die? Well, that's how those guys go out there. Like they have all the bravado, they have all the you know notches carved on the belt, and they go down in a blaze of glory because that's just how guys like that go out in westerns. And this is a space western. And, and you know space what? cowboy went out the same way. Yeah, yeah. But the the best thing about this movie 
was that up until 10 minutes before the movie ended, there were they were still in the middle of a battle. Mm-hmm. The bad guy wasn't dead. How many times do we see movies like prolong that ending? And yes, um, and, and it was great because when they finally won, when they finally defeated the enemy, you know, we had just this tiny resolution and it was all I needed. I didn't need to have some dramatic kiss or some sort of, you know, romanticized ending. It was just that the adventure was over. Yeah, let's not give them too much credit, though, because they were out of money and out of time. Like, sometimes necessity <laughs> is the mother of invention. You're right. But but I, I, I'm going to say, like, yeah, I get it. But that was not an artistic choice. That was a this movie has to be out next week. And so they had and to And that's it. fine, because <laughs> the last line of the movie is one of the best lines in the entire thing. Yeah. And this movie is filled with great quotes, like filled with them. And it was great. I think I, I totally see. I see both sides of that. I mean, I. Rena, you can bring up a really good point in that 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 that's the last line of the movie. That final quote, it's just it sticks with you. Yeah. And sometimes you don't need this big drawn out ending, which I think is also I think works. However, I think I would have liked to have seen something. It just felt like as soon as you said that quote, you're just like, wow, that's amazing. All of a sudden, credits roll. Was like, wait, 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 wait. There's mm-hmm. gonna be some kind of just show, just show the ship right off into the sunset. Just show the people of Akira looking up and seeing that they want just some kind of final scene that just gives <laughs> some sense of finality. It was just almost like just a real fast, boom, here's the credits. So I think because on live, with, pardon me, with stage theater when it's live, I love a show that ends with a line and goes immediately to blackout. Mm. Having that one line be the end made me go, you know what? That means that it, it gives you that appreciation of everybody. You didn't need a funeral. You didn't need some sort of ceremony for everybody. In that line, their whole religious and societal belief that, and, and the quote was, the Akira believed that no form ends until all the lives that it has touched are ended, until all the good that it has done is gone. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Like yeah, that it- whole belief, we don't have to go back to a funeral. We don't have to do any of that shit. And it, you know, it's really interesting, you know, when people go to watch theater, I will agree, the most impactful kind of ending is the one you just talked about. They just real quick, go to black. Yep. But if it's drawn out, it doesn't it doesn't seem as impactful. Whereas in the movies, if it's a real quick ending, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, whoa, whoa, whoa. You want that drawn out for some reason. I wonder, you know, it's, it's strange how that's Like, why is that? Why is that? Why do we have to change that up? I don't know. People start expanding things that we have to have 20 different celebrations and 55 Lord of the Rings endings and, you know, Jed's <laughs> a millionaire. That's, that's how that goes. But you know what? Yeah, I, I can see for forever, boom, end and we're out. Yeah, that works, you know, like that. And the same with this, you know, you're both right. And I, I love that idea that nothing that's truly dead that's been loved and celebrated by the living ever really goes away, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it's a great sentiment for what this movie's been about, which was about, desperate people who go to the most desperate links and it actually works. There was one quote that resonated to me, which was, while life exists, the possibilities are limitless. And I think that's a good take home message for anybody is that we're all still here. There's more to be had. Nothing is over. Yes. Yes. Well, I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for Battle Beyond the Stars? Nate. Well, so this to me was, it's nostalgic. 
It's great sci-fi. As I got older and learned the impacts it had on future films that I also appreciated from my youth and as an adult, it became even more impactful to me. I This, to me, was one of the greatest science fiction films. Yes, you have to go into it thinking it's a lower-budget film. It's not going to be Star Wars. But it's also not going to be something really cheaply made either. It's It had better effects than 1995 Super Mario Brothers. So, you know, that's, <laughs> that's saying a lot. At least it's doing well for its time. It, to me, the story, the, the action, the just get-to-the-point stuff, the everything about it I love. I'm giving this an extra-large popcorn. It is, without a doubt, one of my favorite science fiction films. It is my all-time favorite soundtrack. So, I mean, Star Trek Two and Star Trek Three are very, very close, but this one is my favorite. It is the one that makes me want to just charge in where, you know, angels fear to tread. Yes, that is me. Extra-large popcorn for me. Irina? I wanted to hate this. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted it to be the worst movie I had ever seen in my life. And then I sat and watched it, and I couldn't move away from the screen. And I feel like I have to whisper this, Jay, but I want to give it an extra large popcorn. Wow, your first one! So I, in the history of me being on the show... I have never given anything more than a large popcorn. I even gave my favorite movie of all time a medium popcorn. But this movie gave me, uh, and, and you have to understand, I come from a family where we didn't have cable. All we had was movies that were recorded on VHS that my mom and my dad's friends gave them when they went to work because we worked. Dirt poor, we had literally nothing. So my mom would bring home VHSs that were three hour long tapes. One of them had like the Terminator, Aliens, and then something else on it. And then we had one that was like the Electric Horseman and the Sting and Running Scared. And we had like just these collections. But my dad and I, we would sit and we would put in like... Star Trek movies, or we would have the whole, like all of the Star Wars movies on one VHS and we would stick it in and we would watch it. And those are the time we would fall asleep on the floor in front of the TV because it was one of those old TVs that was set in the wood that, oh, you know, yeah. you had to crank had everything. one of those old Zenith, yeah. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh, you know, no cable or anything. And this brought back all of those good vibes of all of those movies. And I... I'm not a Star Wars fan. The only thing I love about Star Wars really is Han Solo. That's legit it. I will only watch the original three. I refuse to think that the others exist. And this movie was like bridging the gap between all of the Star Wars things I loved and all of the Star Trek things I loved. And then you put James Horner in it. I was like, shit! (laughs) Like, my mind blew up. My brain blew up. And I looked at my husband and I was like, I have to an extra large popcorn i even sent ron a text message earlier and i was like i have to give something an extra large popcorn i've never done it this is my extra large jay this is it of all things this is my extra large of all the things i thought would get it i didn't know this would so (laughs) you know i i when i judge anything on these shows it's always in context of what it's trying to be and does it achieve that or how badly does it fail at meeting that mark and then is it entertaining you know, did I have fun watching it? 
And the truth of the matter is, like I told both of you, not at one single moment was I bored with any of this. My wife walks in and watches me watching this, and she's not into sci-fi movies at all. So she didn't watch it, but she was like, so what is this? She's like, oh, wait a minute, John Boy? I said, yeah, right? And so she kind of watched it for a minute. She said, well, how is it? I said, do you know, it's not that bad. I mean, it's not great, but it's actually kind of watchable, like more than I thought it was going to be. That was maybe 40 minutes into the movie. And I'm just sitting there watching it and watching it, and I had to go back and watch it again. Like, I got it in twice before we did the show because I just wanted to make sure I caught it all again. And I still think I missed stuff. And that's the cool thing about this was I think it's one that definitely is worth rewatching. So if it's got a rewatchability to it, that automatically cranks it up. Everything about this is medium popcorn in the good way, except the score's awesome. The effects are amazing. They make up for some of the weak acting and some of the holes in the, the script necessarily. But John Saxon's a great villain. And this is totally rewatchable and so much fun. And again, like we've done over the last hour here, we've talked about all the things that have cribbed from this. So this is large popcorn, supreme, good extra butter. Sit down, have a good time. Total blast to watch and was really fun to review. It was even more fun to talk about with you two. So, Nate, thanks for bringing this to the plate and thanks for joining us on Filmstrip. Tell folks how they can follow you if uh, you want them to do so. Yes, I do. And thank you guys for having me. This was great. And I uh, hope to come back again, especially if you want to talk Star Trek, too. So, um, but yeah, I do a blog. It's a it's called Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite.wordpress.org, comma, whatever it is. But it's a it's a sports and science fiction blog where I basically look at anybody, anything that covers sports and, and science fiction. I just did a ranking of the Marvel movies. I, I talk about Star Trek Picard, I talk about Star Trek Discovery, I talk about a lot of other science fiction, I also talk baseball, it's, those are my two biggest passions are sports and science fiction, so yeah, check it out, take me out to the hollow suite, all one word, I know it's really long, but uh, take me out to the hollow suite, edwordpress.com. Fantastic, thanks again for being here. Irina, how can folks follow you on the social media? Oh, folks can find me at i.nerd on Instagram, eye.nerd. And uh, I sing on Twitter, which is E-Y-E-S-I-N-G. I don't do anything exciting, but every once in a while, I am entertaining. <laughs> and thank you so much for everybody for listening to this episode. You can find our archives on the podcast feed at filmstrippodcast.com. You'll find links to all the places you can find the show. Please subscribe. Leave us a positive review wherever you find the show and share it with others. We appreciate the support. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at filmstrippod and search Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook to connect with us there and see announcements about upcoming shows and interact with all the various hosts here on Filmstrip. We appreciate your support. For Nate and Irina, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.